It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, so Richard Sharp resigns as BBC chairman, we'll discuss. And also, should the rules around lobbying change? Well, first... Bad news if you're a football or Eurovision fan. Rail unions have rejected a pay offer from the government, which means that new strike dates are potentially going to clash with both competitions. Four more days of industrial action are planned for May and June. The government says that its pay offer was fair and reasonable. Same old, same old. But teachers as well are balloting for more strikes. That could mean coordinated walkouts of teachers. And we know, Caroline, already that the teacher strikes are more harmful to the economy than the rail strikes. We saw that Mm -hmm. in the latest GDP data. And separately, we know that a UK court has told nurses that their plans for more walkouts must end a day early. So lots and lots of news on the strike front. Yeah, absolutely. And today is actually another teacher's strike day. Um, In terms of... Of other stories, though, that we're watching out for. I remember the Brexit bonfire. Mm. Apparently, it's been extinguished. <laughs> so, back in 2016, Brexiters were arguing uh, that leaving the European Union wasn't all about the, co- the economy, it was also about sovereignty, of course, breaking free of the shackles of Brussels. They wanted to get rid of a lot of the laws on the statute books as a hangover. A Brexit bonfire of regulations was the prize. But now, Kemi Badenoch, the uh, Business and Trade Secretary, has told a committee of MPs this week that the government actually going to break that promise. Um, It's not going to uh, manage to get rid of these thousands of EU laws by the end of this year. Uh, The Telegraph newspapers reported on this. The numbers that it has reported is that it's only about in the hundreds of it, laws that are going to be swept aside. You'll remember that uh, we actually had this story at Bloomberg way yeah. back in November that you had civil servants warning that this target... And business. This, yeah, that this target of the government's was unachievable. Here it is. Uh, it's going to make uh, And those... arbitrary, right? And, and very difficult if you then don't replace some of that legislation with you know, whatever framework you want to replace it with, then then that's tricky. So, yeah, interesting that, that the bonfire no longer. Yeah, and it's going to make those hardline Brexiters who are already tearing their hair out about Rishi Sunak's Windsor framework, the New Deal on Northern mm. Ireland, even angrier because this was supposed to be, as you say, one of the big 
Brexit dividends. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I mean, it's sort of related in terms of Brexit benefits, uh, whether the UK could get a trade deal, that mirage of a trade deal with the United States. Ron DeSantis is visiting the UK. He's been on a big trade deal. The governor of Florida has only been to four countries and the last stop is the UK. It's really interesting because he hasn't declared yet whether he's going to be a, a presidential candidate, but he's widely expected to try to run as the Republican candidate. And also the UK's got big ties with Florida, so he's going to be meeting um, some senior ministers in the UK. Yeah, James Cleverley and Kemi Badenoch. It's a well-trodden path for would-be presidential nominees, but I don't know how this is going to go down with Donald Trump. I think British diplomats will be treading very carefully so as not to upset him if he becomes the next US president. And I'm sure that, as you say, Kemi Badenoch is going to want to raise the prospects of a UK-US mm. trade deal, not just a state-by-state deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's travelling with his with his wife, Casey, also with their children. Um, they were in South Korea, in Japan and Israel before. I didn't really know this until Juan DeSantis said it a number of times on, on his trip, that Florida has the 15th largest economy in the entire world. I'm thinking out loud here, Caroline. Yeah. But if we can negotiate with states on an individual basis mm. in the US. Why did we have to leave the European Union to, to do that? To do this. Uh, if, if, I know we weren't a state why. of the EU, but Yeah, no absolutely you see my I do, I do. And yet I think it's also an important moment, a very important US figure over here in the UK. Uh right. Let's talk about then what's happening with the BBC. So Richard Sharp has resigned as BBC chairman after an official inquiry that found that he had breached rules by failing to disclose ties to the Conservative Party leadership. The government appointments watchdog has commissioned an independent probe after it emerged that he helped to arrange a loan of as much as £800,000 for the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, a loan which wasn't publicly disclosed during his application for the top BBC job. So to discuss more, we're joined by Thomas Seal, Bloomberg's London-based tech, media and telecoms reporter. Sharp didn't quit, Thomas, when this was initially reported by the Sunday Times. What did the official inquiry find that actually shifted this situation and meant that he's gone? So the technical breach, which seems to have been fatal, is that Sharp didn't disclose something which leads to a potential perceived conflict of interest. This is the bureaucratic language that the lawyer has used. Effectively, uh, Sharp did tell one senior official, the cabinet secretary, Simon Case, but he didn't tell the panel interviewing him for the BBC job, which he should have done. Sharp didn't resign at first because he maintains that this was an inadvertent breach of the rules and it was not material. However, the reason he's changed his mind is partly the huge story it's created. It's just pressure. Um, he doesn't say that, of course. And he says it, it um, now what's his language, that it um, could be a distraction effectively from, from his job running the BBC. Does this have blowback for Simon Case then? Well, I think there will be questions about um, Mr Case's role. Then again, I think Sharp was the man with the obligation. Um, I, I haven't read the full governance code, but uh, certainly Case has probably be not relished becoming a protagonist in this story. Let's put it that way. Mm. 
We've had two Fridays then with huge news in a row. Last week, the Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab resigning over bullying. Uh, does Sharp's resignation help or hinder Sunak, given his promise to run a government based on integrity and accountability? It's fascinatingly close, isn't it? Uh, 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 Sharp was Sunak's boss when they worked together at Goldman Sachs. He helped the government during COVID as a special advisor, unpaid, uh, but had previously donated £400,000 to the Conservative Party um, many years ago. And so I think, in a way, Sharp's resignation takes some pressure off Sunak to do anything, to act. Um, There'll be questions about who his replacement as BBC chairman will be. They'll have to find someone who doesn't attract the same level of... uh, Um, questions about uh, links to the Tory party. Uh, But it it is the prerogative of the party in power to appoint their own people um, to a certain extent. And uh, we've seen this as well with uh, the chairman of Ofcom, who is a uh, who was a um, Tory, uh, who is now a crossbench peer. Um, So both both parties do it. But I think uh, particularly under Boris Johnson, they, um, you know, this became a real issue. Yeah, it looks murky whether he jumped or Sunak pushed him. I mean, where does it leave the BBC and its claim to impartiality? Yeah, it's such um, a eternal debate in the BBC where the chairman is appointed by the government, but it's got to be independent. Um, the Labour Party has said that this has really damaged uh, perceptions around the BBC. And there's been a roiling debate uh, from people who have left the BBC and gone into the private sector, people like Emily Maitlis, um, accusing uh, the BBC of being unduly influenced by uh, a fellow called uh, Robbie Gibb, who's joined the BBC board. But before that, his role was the spokesperson for Theresa May. So there's a sort of a perception of a revolving door and um, I think the BBC needs to work hard to move past it. It's not going to be easy. So then in terms of runners and riders as to the successor to Richard Sharp, I mean, the idea is that it would be someone from the handful of people on the board who would take over it temporarily. But again, those those have some influence from government, don't they, in terms of who those um, those individuals are? Yes, so they they will run another process now. I think in the immediate, uh, so for the next two months, Sharp will remain on the board. Um, There is one sort of Tory-linked person on the board, which is this this fellow, Robbie Gibb. It would be a big story if they choose him as the replacement. I personally think that's unlikely, but you never know. Uh, And there are some more sort of broadcasting experts. Um, It could be another external appointment. I'm not sure exactly. Um, In terms of runners and riders... There are lots of uh, media figures with links to the party. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go out on a limb and speculate. I think they need to play it safe with this next person. Well, we'll be getting you straight back on the podcast if it's Robbie Gibb. Uh, thank you so much, <laughs> Thomas Seal. That's our London-based tech, media and telecoms reporter, Thomas Seal. Thank you. Now, the issue of lobbying has become increasingly problematic after a year which has seen multiple former cabinet ministers say they would accept money for influence. And this week's gambling white paper was surrounded by allegations of inappropriate lobbying that were then denied. Add to that the near collapse of one of Britain's biggest business lobbying groups, the CBI. And do we need new rules around lobbying? To discuss joining us now is Head of Public Relations and Policy at the Chartered Institute of Public Relations, John Gurlis. John, thanks so much for being with us. 
you published a paper this week on what that reform should look like. Just explain for us what you think should be done. Is Parliament taking this issue seriously enough? Thanks, Lizzie. Well, we've had two years of lobbying scandals sitting the headlines and the front pages. And following those scandals, we've had a number of reports and inquiries looking into the issue of uh, of lobbying and some of the issues surrounding lobbying, all of which have come to the conclusion that the rules around lobbying are just not fit for purpose. And yet, despite that, the, per- the report that we put out earlier this week uh, called A Never-Ending Scandal shows that Parliament actually very rarely take this uh, this issue quite seriously. There's occasional conversations about it at the time of scandal, and then they quickly fall away again. And what we're saying now is actually for the government to take this issue seriously, there's an election coming up. The report that we published also included some public polling, uh, and this stuff is cutting through, and it is making uh, it is making its way into the minds of voters. And what we're saying is that whilst it might not be an immediate doorstep issue, it certainly is going to influence the kind of conversations that uh, MPs or prospective MPs have on the doorstep. So we do need new rules, absolutely. Yeah, we've just been talking about uh, Richard Sharp quitting as BBC chairman. It just adds to the murk, doesn't it, around government? Well, it does. But then I'll I'll push back against John. Neither party's going to go for tougher rules when it comes to lobbying because let's say, the Times revealed last month a Conservative MP offered to table parliamentary questions, leak confidential policy documents, lobby ministers on behalf of the gambling industry. And on the other side, you have Labour front benchers uh, taking significant uh, donations and uh, from private donors for staffing and office costs. Uh, names like Yvette Cooper, David Lammy, West Streeting. And Rachel Reeves. And Rachel Reeves. So... Neither party has has an interest, do they, in making the rules significantly more difficult? Well, I would argue, actually, a lot of those uh, points you've just put forward are probably an argument for good lobbying and for good lobbying rules. Ideally, where decisions of of government or even those in opposition uh, are made should come as a result of good lobbying rather than just people uh, that you know or contacts in your little black book or business interests that you might have outside of parliament. What we're saying is lobbying is an incredibly important part of our democratic, uh, of our democracy. And what we want to see is actually a, a degree of transparency and accountability. Now, the government did take this seriously because they commissioned the, the uh, Nigel Boardman to look at this, uh, the issue of lobbying following the Greensill scandal. Um, that report was published uh, about a year ago or so. Nothing's happened from that. The government also uh, instructed the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee to look into the, uh, the Lobbying Act, the rules and the legislation around lobbying um, as well. So it's an issue that is being taken seriously. And as I said at the Stars. It's an issue that now a number of recommendations, reports, campaign groups like the CIPR and others have simply said that is not working and changes are required. But John, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Politicians want to win power. Realistically, this is the money that oils the wheels that gets them there. Specifically, what would you change to make this realistically work better? So at the moment, the legislation uh, means that we have a register of uh, consultant lobbyists. That means third party lobbyists that can, uh, lobby on behalf of a, a client or another organisation are required to register. At the moment, that means that there's only 251, I believe, organisations on the register. And it captures estimates, say, about 4% of lobbying activity that happens in this country. When you compare it to other international registers, 
we are lacking behind the likes of the EU, the US, Canada, Spain, Slovenia, Peru, Mexico, Germany, the Netherlands, Ireland, Scotland, and countless others. Lobbying registers do work in other countries. Uh, in fact, we're one of the few that doesn't count in-house lobbyists. So those uh, people and lobbyists that work for organizations, and there's absolutely no requirement for them to register at all. And in fact, Transparency International uh, put out their um, their uh, their data in terms of who's been meeting with departments, and of all the top ten lobbyists, none of them are required to register on the uh, on on the Westminster Register. So we're calling for a widening of the register. We want a register of lobbyists uh, of lobbying, and not a register of lobbyists. And uh, and I think, like I say, it's a, it's a situation that seems to work fairly well in other countries. We're the outlier to that at the moment. Do you think that the um... The, the near collapse, I'll say, of the CBI um, could change matters. I mean, they are, you know, from from our perspective, thinking about kind of business, they are clearly a hugely important voice. And indeed, they, you know, sort of sell themselves, pride themselves on the fact that they are able as the voice of business to kind of gain access to ministers and, and rightly so, surely, on many topics. Do you think, though, that the CBI facing the difficulties, you know, that it does, its own, own internal issues, do you think that that change could provide a kind of fresh window? I'm not sure. I mean, lobbying is, is a discipline where the intention of the activity is to inform and influence public policy and law, wherever there will be people making decisions on regulations, on legislation, then there will always be people looking to influence those decisions. And it's not just a case of influencing it for personal gain. As I said at the beginning, uh, lobbying provides an incredibly important part of our democracy. It provides detailed information to parliamentarians who are time poor and haven't got uh, the staff may be necessarily to get really into the detail of a particular policy decision. Now, there are business groups and trade associations and uh, private organizations that will meet uh, and and do that on a regular basis. Whatever that looks like and whoever's doing it, I think it's very important that uh, policy decision makers continue to keep those lines of communication open. Um, and it will continue one way or another, whether there's business representative groups or individual businesses going to do that. Um, I don't think it changes the landscape. What we're really saying is, actually, it's not so much a case of the fact that lobbying is going to stop or change. It's the fact that the rules need to become clearer so that there's a degree of transparency and accountability so that businesses know when they do lobby, they have to, uh, they have to be slightly more transparent about it. But I feel like partly the point is the onus isn't just on MPs, it's also on those who are lobbying. Because what has annoyed so many about the CBI is the perceived hypocrisy that it was demanding such high ethical standards of its members, of the government, when it is alleged it's having problems at home. Uh, ab- absolutely. And and your point about uh, the responsibility being on both sides is, is completely accurate. There's lobbying as a two-way street. Uh, it takes absolutely two people to, to engage in lobbying, the lobbied and the lobbyist. And it's absolutely right that business should accept its responsibilities when it comes to, uh, to, to um, I think, adhering to a certain amount of, of transparency. I mean, we're not talking uh, in, in some of the other countries and international registers I mentioned where there is necessarily copious amounts of detail attached to those, but simply just a record uh, and uh, and the ability to put yourselves into the public frame when it comes to the fact that you are legitimately and rightly seeking to uh, to engage and influence politicians. 
Are you concerned, just lastly, at the Chartered Institute of Public Relations, that actually the fact that the lobbying rules are so lax and there have been such a large number of scandals is actually damaging the industry? Is that the drive for trying to create better standards? It, it absolutely does do that. The reputation of, of um, although there's a, a saying that public relations practitioners like to use where there's a, you know, another lobbying scandal that doesn't involve a lobbyist, I think as far as the public goes, uh, they don't distinguish between the two. Our members and the, the industry at large takes its responsibilities incredibly seriously. And when it comes to agencies or firms or consultancies um, lobbying, they already have to put themselves onto the register. So there's absolutely a, a good argument to say that this isn't just a case of doing the right thing. It's actually about making sure that politicians uh, understand the value of reputation and trust that the industry able is able to put itself forward and understands the, those uh, matters too. And ultimately, it's for the benefit of the public as well. So really, we're trying to, to improve uh, the landscape when it comes to our politics and the reputation of our politics for all the players in it. Okay, John Gurlis. Head of Public Relations and Policy at the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. Really, really fascinating to talk to you about uh, the issue of lobbying. Now, it's been almost eight months since Queen Elizabeth II passed away and King Charles III was elevated to the throne. Next weekend, we'll see the formal events marking his coronation, an event that has not happened in the UK in 70 years. To discuss, we are joined in studio by Bloomberg reporter Louise Moon. Um, of course, we're less than a week away now from the coronation. What are the events planned for the coronation bank holiday weekend? We get two bank holiday weekends in a row. I know, very exciting. Well, as I say, it's a whole weekend of plans. So the actual day is on Saturday, that's May 6th. Um, and that will all centre around the coronation. So it's a religious event. It's an ancient rite of passage, given that the monarch is the head of the state and the head of the Church of England. Mm. So the exact details about the day um, are yet to be released. But what we know is that that the king will process, process, join a procession from Buckingham mm-hmm. Palace to Westminster Abbey, and that's where the service will take place. That's expected to last about 1.5 hours. It will have about 2,000, 2,200 guests um, led by the Archbishop of Canterbury. He'll be crowned there, um, and Camilla, the Queen Consort, will also be crowned, and then there'll be a bigger procession back to Buckingham Palace. So that's the key main day, and then, as you say, there's a whole weekend. So on Sunday, there's a concert. So it's the first ever concert in Windsor Castle. So 5,000 people have been given a free ticket to go to that. And I think, from memory, Katy Perry is playing, which is very (laughs) exciting. Um, And then on Monday... um, King Charles has promoted a whole day of helping out, essentially, so volunteering. So he's encouraging the whole country to go out and volunteer um, whatever in whatever form that may be. Because yeah, he's been passionate about charity work all his life and his very long wait to be king. Um, so it sounds like lots going on. Will it actually boost the UK economy? So in terms of hospitality and tourism, it is expected to provide a boost. So for tourism, for example, domestic bookings are said to be up um, and as well as international tourists. So bookings from the US, for example, are up 10% compared to pre-pandemic at the same period in pre-pandemic. Um, hospitality is also expected to get a £350 million boost. That's people flocking to pubs, to restaurants. They've got, obviously, as we say, an extra day's holiday licensing hours have been extended from 11pm till 1am so they've got a lot more hours of drinking buying beers (laughs) buying curries maybe Um, and that's in added sales so more than what uh, retailers would expect um, over an average weekend 
Slight caveat that this is a bit less than the expected sales from the Jubilee. So mm. Charles potentially isn't bringing in as much as um, his mother's Jubilee did. Um, and obviously it comes at a welcome time. You know, energy bills are at a record high. It's higher borrowing costs, double-digit inflation. So this will be a very welcome boost for hospitality. Um, but at the same time, obviously, a bank holiday means one less day of working in the UK. Yes, so, that's problematic um, for... GDP. Exactly. So Bloomberg Economics said that on balance, it will cost the UK economy about two billion. Um, so even though we've got, you know, boost to hospitality, boost to tourism, mm. as a whole, it won't necessarily be beneficial for okay. the economy. Okay. Who is attending? Um, because it's also sort of seen as obviously very important for Britain on the world stage and all yes. of these high profile people coming to the UK. Yeah, quite exciting. Um, we'll have hopefully lots of Lots of famous people flocking to the UK. but um, So it's a lot less. If, if we were to compare it to Queen Elizabeth II's coronation, it's a lot smaller. So as I said, it's about 2,000 guests and she had uh, about over 8,000 mm. roughly for hers. Um, we don't know the full extent of the guest list, um, but there are a few people that have confirmed or not confirmed. So Biden won't be coming, um, but his, he's sending his wife. So she will be coming along. Um, and obviously it was all over the papers that Meghan Markle won't be attending. Mm. Um, it's their son's birthday, apparently, over the same weekend. But Harry is coming. Um, and then aside from that, lots of heads of state, government representative, tons of mm. MPs and other dignitaries. So it'll be a big event from global leaders flocking yeah. to the UK. Although also the possibility of protests of Republican yes. anti-monarchist protests. I think uh, it'll be uh, an interesting one. Louise, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg reporter Louise Moon. We will uh, have much more, of course, in terms of coronation coverage for you next week on Bloomberg UK Politics. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. We'll be back with more next week. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.